said that Jesus promised his disciples three things. First, that they would be absurdly happy. Second, that they would be completely fearless. And third, that they would be constantly in trouble. And no doubt that quotation is on to something. Not least because as we've already discovered in our series in Acts, the early church has been characterized by exuberant joy and has shown extensive courage in proclaiming the gospel. And yet, one could be forgiven for thinking, as we've studied so far, that the third pledge, the promise of trouble, has hardly come to fruition. Acts chapters 1 to 3 show us, so to speak, that the weather conditions have been favorable for the church. From the thrilling outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost to the climactic sermon with 3,000 conversions. From the glorious fellowship, the devotion to the teaching and to prayer to the continuing growth in the church throughout the period. And then as we turn the page into Acts chapter 3, the blue skies continue. As we learned last Sunday, a crippled man who has been disabled for 40 years is immediately and miraculously healed. And so it stands to reason that by the end of chapter 3, we may well have the picture of nothing but unbroken sunshine at the dawn of the early church. However, as we continue our journey into Acts chapter 4 today, the climate's about to change. Recently, our family visited some friends in the north of Scotland, and from their front window, there was a glorious view over the North Sea. And one lunchtime, we were enjoying the beautiful clear skies, glorious weather for the time of year and for Scotland. And as we gazed out over the horizon, we suddenly saw a storm front moving towards us across the North Sea. And while it was sunshine where we were, our host quickly ran into the garden and grabbed the washing in off the line just before the thunderstorm struck. And you see, if Acts chapters 1 to 3 are the sunshine, then Acts chapter 4 is the storm clouds on the horizon. True, there's still a little time before the full vent of the storm hits. In Acts chapter 5, with beatings. And in Acts chapter 7, with the first martyrdom in the church. But even now, the black clouds are looming large, and the early church begins to realize that it can no longer continue its mission in an altogether friendly climate. From now on, And beginning from here, it will be facing up to foes in what was, as Peter mentioned, the first persecution of the early church. I do invite you to reopen your Bible, please, to Acts chapter 4 then. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 22. Let me submit to you that something important to grasp at the outset of this is that this is every bit as important a topic for us today as it was for the early church. 
And it's every bit as important a topic for us as it is for Christians around the globe, some of whom are suffering much more than we are. Hostility, however, is certainly not absent in our little corner of the world. The late Selwyn Hughes once surveyed a group of people who had once professed faith in Jesus, but no more. And Selman wanted to find out why these folks were no longer walking with Christ. And he discovered that there were four main reasons in the people that he surveyed. And these are folks that live in the UK. One of the reasons, which surprised me a little bit, was persecution. People that were actually finding it just too tough, just too difficult to carry on being a Christian. And as the hostility rises year upon year, it seems, increasingly chapters like this have something very significant to teach us. And so with this in mind, let's consider Acts chapter 4 and the text itself. And I want to suggest there are three groups that we meet in this story. And the first of them is fearsome foes. Fearsome foes in verses 1 to 6. Now no doubt, in any opposition that the church faces... There is, of course, malevolent spiritual forces at work. Often at work behind the scenes and in ways we cannot see. Nevertheless, hostility, as far as the church faces it, invariably has a human face. There are real men and women who oppose us. There are flesh and blood protagonists who persecute. And it's a worthwhile question to ask in this context, who were they? Who were these opponents that Peter and John faced? Basically, they were the who's who of Jewish leadership at the time. As we would say in Glaswegian parlance, they were the hyhegians. You know, the priests, the chief of temple police, and the Sadducees in verse 2. And then we have the rulers, the elders, and the law teachers in verse 5. And then in verse 6, the icing on the cake You have four names, all of whom come out of the most powerful family in Jerusalem at the time. and includes both the ex-high priest, Annas, and the acting high priest, Caiaphas. In other words, here we have all the big cheeses of Jerusalem leadership together on the one plate. And here they are, locking arms against the apostles. What must have made this most formidable was that this group had a track record of brutality. These men are those men who were conspirators in the death of Jesus himself. You may recognize the names because we considered them in Luke's Gospel. As Jesus stood before Annas, as Jesus stood before Caiaphas, as he stood before the Sanhedrin who condemned him. So this is no Mickey Mouse opposition that they're facing. And then we ask, secondly, well, what what was it that they opposed? Verse 2 tells us that they were greatly disturbed. What was it that made these folks so hot under the collar? Now look at verse 2 with me. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people. That is, firstly, they opposed in principle the apostles as teachers. It was probably the Sadducees who were most irked by this. The Sadducees were an influential religious and political outfit. 
And they viewed themselves as the legitimate teachers of the people. And as such, they only approved those who attended their rabbinical schools. In other words, if you hadn't attended their Bible colleges, uh, you didn't have their rubber stamp, you were not approved by them to be teaching anybody. Yet along comes these apostles. And who do they think they are? Teaching in the Sadducee streets, wooing the Sadducee's crowds, and under whose authority? And therefore their credentials are brought under question. And then in addition, as well as their credentials, notice also they have concerns about the content of the teaching itself. Not only do they oppose the apostles as teachers, they also oppose the teaching of the apostles. They were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Heresy alert as far as the Sadducees were concerned. They didn't believe in the doctrine of the resurrection at all. So not only were these men teaching when they shouldn't be teaching, they were also teaching aberrant theology. And therefore, when we ask thirdly, what did they do about it? How did they respond? Well, in quick time. And it's notable that uh, they do not uh, have a debate with the apostles. They don't discuss with them the theological issues. They resort to bully tactics. To begin with, intimidation in verse 1. When it says here, incidentally, they came up to Peter and John, the sense is that they came upon them, pounced on them, attempting to unsettle them. And then due to the fact that the high court, the Sanhedrin, isn't open for business at this hour of the day, intimidation is followed by incarceration. The apostles are thrown into jail till morning. And you might wonder to yourself, as I have, what the apostles thought about that evening as they waited for trial in the morning. Surely they must have remembered how Jesus, their Lord, had stood before this same Sanhedrin. And the end result being his crucifixion, being nailed to a cross. Perhaps intimidation and incarceration would lead to their elimination too. Perhaps. And yet one gets the impression that if they thought about this, They also thought about something else. About the glorious power of the gospel to save. About the message which they preached, which was unstoppable and able to advance even in the face of foes. You see, dead uh, dead center in this narrative. It's utterly striking, isn't it? That in the middle of this section, as the foes are outlined, we have verse 4. Verse 4, it immediately follows... The third verse, when Peter and John are incarcerated, and it's almost deliberately inserted as the follow-on. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Even as the hands of the apostles were being shackled, the hearts of many people were being released from their sins, from the chains of their condemnation. It's been a truth that's been echoed down the centuries and a lesson that persecutors have been slow to learn. That you can chain preachers of the gospel, but you cannot chain the gospel itself. You may abuse or remove and even martyr the messengers of the good news, but you cannot contain the power of the message for salvation. 
testimony to that has been the country of China in the last 100 years, hasn't it? It's a striking thing, isn't it? That historically, it was after the foreign missionaries were kicked out of China in 1950 that the exponential and explosive growth just took off. It seems that the more imprisonments, the more martyrdoms, the more conversions. And dear friends, with these things in mind, I think there are two things that we must expect. Therefore, in our experience, first of all, that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be persecuted. Jesus once said that no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And yet, secondly, we must also expect that even as we are opposed, the gospel that we preach and believe cannot be stopped. And these really are truths that we must fix in our minds in these times of rising hostility in our nation. When the sharp tongues of secular atheism have never been more vociferous and venomous. When the public square deems it no longer acceptable for us to bring our Christian faith into its sphere. Someone was telling me recently, they went for an interview to become a teacher, and one of the questions they were asked, and knowing they were a Christian, was, you're not going to bring Jesus into the classroom, are you? It's coming into our everyday experience, isn't it? We had a recent prayer meeting for Christians in the arts, and two individuals who work in that broad field said that if you want funding from certain bodies you had better not, quote, wear your Christianity on your sleeve. That's what someone had told them. This is reality for us. And some of you, some of us, have it very difficult in the workplace. Some of us are the only Christian in the office. And people think you're ridiculous for believing what you believe. And it's not to mention even the most excruciating hard persecution of all, which is not at the workplace, which at least you can leave, but is right at home. And in your family circle, in your friendship circle, what do you do when those closest to you oppose your faith? That can feel not just hard, that can feel impossible. You know, if that's something in your experience, God's Word wouldn't want to minimize the challenge of that. These verses lay out the very significant challenge that was before Peter and John. And we would love to pray with you perhaps after this service today. Certainly we would encourage you to speak to another Christian if you are struggling in your particular situations at work or at home. But at the same time, let me encourage you that the gospel that you believe and proclaim is an unstoppable force. And that moreover... The hostility you face can also be something of a blessing in disguise. That the opposition can actually be an opportunity for sharing Christ. You see, this is what we move to next. From fearsome foes, secondly, to courageous preachers. Courageous preachers in verses 7 to 12. Peter and John should have been intimidated if that was the idea of jumping them and jailing them, it seems they hadn't read the script. And instead, the next morning, as they're hauled before the Sanhedrin, 
the Jewish Supreme Court, the apostles are nothing but fearless. Indeed, it's almost as if they thought to themselves something like this. What an occasion in the providence of God. How good of the Jewish leadership, all 71 of them, to assemble together in the one place just for us. What do you think, John? Will we share the gospel with them? Well, this they did. And it took tremendous courage. And I want us to notice two things about their courage. By the way, one one writer I read recently said that he thought the biggest problem in the evangelical church in 2008 is that Christians have lost their nerve. That's what he thought the biggest problem was. I want us to notice two things about the apostles' courage. First of all, it was evidenced by their preaching of Jesus. See, when the authorities inquire into the healing that has recently taken place, they don't sort of flannel and give them generalizations about, you know, God has been at work. They have no hesitation in naming the name of Jesus. Look at verse 9. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you healed. While we may have been conduits of the miracle, Jesus has been the cause. This is the healer, Jesus. And there's more, says Peter. I wonder how many of us would have just stopped there, said enough, explained the miracle. But Peter continues, and he now puts his jacket or his cloak or whatever it was on a slack nail. Because then he adds, you know, I think you'll be familiar with the Jesus I'm talking about. This is Jesus of Nazareth. There a lot of Jesus. It was a familiar name in this day. And he says, it's Jesus of Nazareth I'm talking about. And let's be clear also, this is the Jesus whom you crucify. The healer Jesus is the crucified Jesus. And the irony of this is that the one who you crucified and vilified is also the one whom God vindicated. But God raised him from the dead. So the healer Jesus is also the crucified Jesus, and he's the risen Jesus. You rejected him. God accepted him. And this is the contrast that lies behind the quote that then comes from Psalm 118. Peter says, it's just as the Old Testament promised it would be. The stone you builders rejected has become the capstone. In these days, uh, builders would select the stones for their construction very carefully. And particularly the foundation stones were very important that they got the right shape. And so depending on on a rock's formation, they might actually reject certain stones. They, They would be viewed as unworthy, unusable, unfit for purpose. And you see what Peter is saying, don't you? He's saying to the Sanhedrin that Jesus is the stone you Rejected. But the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Here we have the cornerstone or the capstone Jesus. See, in raising Jesus from the dead, God has made it clear that he has placed Jesus as the keystone in the foundation of the kingdom that he's building. And if God has done this, If God's done this, it logically follows what Peter then adds. That if God has gone to all the trouble to build a kingdom upon Jesus, then salvation is found in no one else but Jesus. 
But here we also have the unique Savior, Jesus. Incidentally, it was no less controversial to state this in the first century, the uniqueness of Christ. It too was a time when pluralism abounded, when many gods and any god was worshipped. Yet Peter affirms then and now, there is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And it remains a scandalous notion today. It will always be, let me suggest, a repugnant doctrine to the human heart, which pridefully thinks that it can come to God when it likes and however it likes. We must not, in this inclusive age, fail to preach this exclusive Christ. We must not capitulate into some wishy-washy, sentimental falsehood. We must instead echo what the Lord Jesus himself claimed. Peter, of course, was getting this from Jesus. And what did Jesus say in John chapter 14, verse 6? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He used the definite article three times, and then in case we missed it, he adds, no one comes to the Father except through me. The doctrine of the uniqueness of Jesus comes from Jesus. And in one sense, you might say, well, that's very exclusive. Yes, it is, and it's the reason why we send missionaries to the ends of the earth with the gospel. You see, if you take out this aspect, if you say that if people just believe in God generally and they don't really need to believe in Jesus specifically and somehow they might be saved, if you say that, what is the point of missions? Why do the apostles go, even in Acts, to the ends of the earth, risking their lives and their heads for the gospel? It is to proclaim the name of Jesus. Peter specifically says, it's the only name under heaven by which we must be saved. It's exclusive. And yet there's another sense also in which there's an inclusive aspect here too. True, only through Jesus can people be saved, but anyone can be saved who trusts in Jesus. Or as Peter puts it, it's open to all men under heaven. We have an exclusive and an inclusive message all at once. Salvation is exclusive in its source, but it is universal in its scope. And later in Acts, Peter proclaims this. He says that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And I stand before you this morning and I ask you a straightforward and pointed question today. Have you believed in the name of Jesus for salvation? Whoever you are. On the basis of Scripture, I bring that challenge. And this is no vain hope. This is no wishful suggestion. I bring you the good news of a definitive offer of eternal life. And the undersigning name of it is Jesus. Have you trusted in Him? Have you turned to Him? Have you given your whole life over to Him? And relied upon His death to make you whole. So the interesting parallel between the healing and the wholeness of the crippled man physically and the healing and the wholeness spiritually that's available through Jesus. How much courage it must have taken Peter and John to bring this challenge to the high court of Judaism. It was the first evidence of their courage. But notice the second thing which Mike mentioned and which Peter will say more fully this evening, that they were energized by the Holy Spirit. 
You see, it's not that Peter and John are just brave guys. Lots of bottle and all that. Peter is the very one who has cowered and fled and denied the Lord just months prior to this. What is the difference? Just a few chapters on. Two words. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out at Pentecost. And now, verse 8 says, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see this throughout the book of Acts, that they are repeatedly filled. The Sanhedrin rightly identify also that these unschooled men have been with Jesus. That was true. But it was only the cause that they could see. What they could not identify was what was beneath the surface, the energizing and emboldening power of God's Spirit. And dear friends, if we too will witness courageously in any sense, we must depend on the power of God's Spirit. We must pray, as Peter does later, for boldness. And what happened, as we'll come to the incident tonight, they were filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And here's the great thing. When we allow God to work through us, when we are available and willing and reliant on Him, God works in power. He does. He works in all sorts of different ways when you read it in the Gospels and in Acts. There's all sorts of responses, but there will always, always, always be an impact. And in this case, I think the impact of the preaching is to confound the opponents. God's foes are made to look like fools. And so our third and final heading is dithering judges. Hesitant, wavering, caught in two minds, not knowing what to do. What a state for an austere council to be in is this. And yet these bold men have now put the Sanhedrin on the back foot. The accusers have become the accused. And they don't know what to do about it. And there's something of an obvious dilemma, isn't there? Should they on the one hand punish the men? Beat them up? Make a spectacle of them? Or worse? But yet if they do that... It will surely lead to a public outcry. These men are heroes. They've just healed someone. It would be political suicide to do such a thing to them. And yet the only other possible option doesn't seem any more appealing. For releasing the men would lead to continuing continuing proclamation. Yet more teaching about the risen Jesus. So caught between a rock and a hard place, the dithering deliberations finally result in a tentative decision. The action taken is not one of beating or killing, but warning and threatening. Go on your way, they say, but don't teach any longer at all in the name of this Jesus. Verse 21 tells us, however, that they really couldn't decide how to punish these men. These really didn't know what to do about it. Of course, they could have taken a third way, couldn't they? There was, in fact, a way out that would have been much more sensible and reasonable. They could have believed in the message about Jesus. And it's a reminder, isn't it, that many people reject Jesus in spite of the evidence. Really because of a hard heart and a lack of willingness. Maybe you say this morning up to this point, well, I'm not a foe of Jesus. You know, I'm not an outright opponent of Christ. I'm apathetic about it, but I don't oppose him in an active sense. Let me say to you that if you're not a friend of Jesus this morning, 
You are his full. I really use football illustrations in Charlotte Chapel because I know that uh, I split, you know, the congregation into two halves. But anyway, you couldn't have missed during the week, could you? As well as some team from Glasgow getting through, that uh, there also was two English teams that made it into the Champions League football final, Manchester United and Chelsea. When you get into the final analysis, there are only two teams left, and you either back one team or you back the other. You either don one shirt or you don the other. I wonder who you'll be supporting when the final comes. The point is, you cannot back both. And you know, biblically speaking, there are only two teams in the world. There's a team which Jesus is the captain of, and then there's the other team. And if you're not for Jesus, you're against him. You're shooting the other way. To stretch the analogy a little bit further, it's like these sports games used to play. The great thing is, you can change teams halfway through the game, folks. Don't be like these foolish leaders who refuse to see the truth before their eyes. Even commanding the messengers to be silent. And what did the apostles say to this? Oh well, we'll just take that point on board advisedly. We'll just uh, say nothing anymore about Christ. No, the apostles' response showed that they were having none of it. They asked the judges to consider for themselves, in verse 19, what is reasonable. They should be reasonable people. They're judges after all. Should the apostles not obey God before men? The answer, of course, is that they should obey God before men. Now, generally speaking, Christians are commanded to obey the authorities that God has instituted. You can read about that in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 7. But it's clear from this passage, as well as from other parts of Scripture, that there can be exceptional cases. And the case is this, when the civic authorities explicitly contradict something God has commanded. When it is absolutely clear that God has said this, and the authorities are saying that. Example, when someone commands you not to preach the gospel. If that ever happened in our land, we would have to demur because Jesus has commanded it. God has commanded it. Moreover, the apostles add in verse 20 that they must also testify to what they have witnessed. You know how it is. If you've witnessed something really remarkable, you can't help telling people about it. Surely of all places, a court of law should understand that witnesses must testify. And so... Peter says, we're just going to continue doing what we're doing. Thank you very much. One writer comments, ironically, the early believers had to be commanded to be quiet. while many modern ones have to be commanded to speak. And yet when we do speak, when the Spirit fills us, when we unashamedly, and yet with respect, proclaim the name of Jesus, God's name is glorified, Jesus is honoured, And God's enemies are confounded. Now, I don't want to give a sense of triumphalism this morning. To face up to fearsome foes and to courageously proclaim the good news is hard. Later on, they won't get off this easy. It may involve persecution. You know, as we come in a few moments to communion, we will see before us the broken bread and the poured out wine. And it will remind us that long before the church suffered, 
Jesus suffered. Long before we were ever persecuted in the little ways that we are, Jesus was persecuted. Acts 4 presses home the point that as Christians who follow a Savior who bears the cross, we must also be willing to carry our cross for the gospel. The Apostle Peter, writing decades later, wrote a letter to Christians who were facing up to foes. Dear friends, he said, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And who knows, the opposition might just be your opportunity to speak.